we're at a precipice in Romans. Um, we're, we're about to sort of jump off um, a, like, a, like a plateau. We're about to go way, way, way down deep into some hard things in Romans. And, and this is the bridge. Like this is the, if you think of yourself maybe um, on the side of a cliff or um, some sort of a plateau ridge and, and below you is the, the ocean. We're standing on the, the plateau ridge. Sorry if you're better at geology than me, but I'm just thinking of, of, a, of a solid place to stand where you can see around you and you're about to go down, way, way down deep. I do have an analogy in a second, but I, I just want to put this up there to show you this, where this divide is. So we can put the next verse up. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying. We've, we've gone over these verses in different ways for a few weeks now. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the one who is righteous by faith shall live. Next verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And as you look at these three verses, which are right in the beginning of the letter, I, I, I want you to, to ask yourself some questions. Knowing that 18 is going to introduce a whole big section on our sin and God's wrath against our sin and our terrible predicament. And knowing that he's going to spend like the most of three chapters going over this. Why does he do this tiny, almost tiny little drive-by in verse 17 of the gospel. What I mean to say is, he, Paul is going to have a ton of things to say about the gospel at the end of chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, 11. Massive survey of the glory of the gospel. Before he does that, in 1, 2, and 3, he's going to tell you, he's going to set us up for why we need the gospel so much. God's wrath at our sin as, as the human race. So why in 17 does he just take this, this moment to say, hey, the gospel is salvation for everyone who believes because God reveals his righteousness in it. For everyone who believes from faith to faith, which basically I believe essentially means from beginning to end it's by faith. Okay, because he's going to do a ton of unpacking. He doesn't tell us what these things mean. And, and here's, what, here's the best sense I have of why he's doing this. I think he's trying to get us in a vessel for a second that's safe enough. He's just taking a moment to get us inside a place of security so that we can do a real deep dive into a place that's really hard. L let me try to explain what I mean. In the early morning of April 15th, 1912, over 110 years ago, the HMS Titanic sank. It smashed into an iceberg and took a few hours to sink. You, most of you guys have heard of this story. 1,500 people die, 700 people live. Incredibly epic disaster story, living metaphor for the next 110 years. 
73 years later in 1985, the Titanic was located for the first time by a team of explorers with the help of the U.S. Navy. The Titanic wreckage was 2.5 miles below sea level. It was two and a half miles under the ocean, covered by water. And at that depth, it is impossible to survive. Long before you would get to that depth, if you were gonna try to scuba dive down there, your entire body would explode from the pressure. At that depth, each, each square centimeter, take a centimeter, make it a square of them, you know, one centimeter, one centimeter, one centimeter, make a little square out of centimeters, a little centimeter box, and cover your body with those little centimeters. Be real small about that. Map out your body so that it's just, you know, it's just divided into centimeters. Every single square centimeter on your body would feel the weight of a thousand pounds at that pressure. So it would implode you. You would literally, all the pressure would come in, everything inside would go out, it would be awful. In order to explore all that wreck, the explorers needed a vessel that was really strong to keep them safe down there. The name of that vessel was the DSV Alvin. It was about uh, 23 feet long. That's like a little more than, you know, three six-foot guys laid up on the floor and about eight feet wide. Like me and William laid up on the, on the other direction. It could fit only two people though. Two people. And it weighed, guess how much it weighed? I mean, I'm not going to wait, but I'll just tell you. It weighed 34,000 pounds. 34,000 pounds. It had to be really, really heavy because it had to withstand all that pressure coming from the outside. Because if you're going to explore the Titanic at that level, you need something really massive to get through it successfully. Paul's about to take us down in Romans 1 into the wreckage of SS humanity, so to speak. For the better part of three chapters, he's going to show us how everyone is under God's wrath without Christ, everyone, he's going to show us that in his just and righteous judgment, God must punish us. Even though God loves humanity, he is angry with humanity. And Paul is going to explore our sin and our predicament of condemnation and the coming day of judgment that God will bring to all people. He's going to explore it really thoroughly. He's going to pound it again and again and again and again, verse after verse after verse. But before he takes us into that depth, before we go down to the ocean of, and explore that wreckage, he, I think he's asking us to get inside his own DSV Alvin called the gospel that he's going to use this exploration to create in us a sense of necessity for it. But, but he can't wait. Like he, it's like he can't, he, he can't just start by saying, I've got terrible news for you. He's got to start by saying, listen, I have some really, really good news for you. Hold on. But to make that good news important to you like it should be, I have some really, really hard news to talk about for a while. But, 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 but don't lose hope. Don't Close your ears. Don't harden your heart because there is great news on the other end of this. 
And that's why I think he's doing this. We're, we're, we're still on the ocean in verse 17. We're high above the wreckage, but we have to go down into verse 18 about God's wrath and our sin. And for a long time, we're gonna be exploring that. So Paul is saying, let's go down safely by getting in this vessel called hope before we dive. I have no idea, honestly, if that's why Paul has ordered things this way, but that's my best sense of why before he explores God's wrath, our condemnation, and then the gospel in chapter after chapter after chapter, he wants us to think for a moment about something called the gospel of the righteousness of God revealed. So this morning, before, before we step off the surface of the deep in coming weeks and go down into the deep dregs of the wreckage of the SS humanity, I think we need to take some time to grasp God's salvation more deeply in this phrase, particularly, that Paul says is in the very engine room of the gospel called the righteousness of God. Does that make sense? Let's pray that God will help us to understand. He'll help me to teach clearly and help you to receive clearly uh, this very heavy subject. Lord, I, I just ask for help right now. I thank you for everyone in this room. I thank you for everyone online. Lord, I pray for Mike and Pam and Andrew who are all, and, and Jesse and Michelle, there, there's been a little COVID in that situation. I just pray for all of them and wherever they are online or at home resting, I just pray for them for their health. Pray for Luke and Maddie and Kate and Michael in New Jersey. Lord, I, I miss all your people and I thank you God so much for those who are here this morning and I pray that you would please serve us through your word. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner who has uh, sinned in, in ways I haven't prepared the way I should have this week, even as I tried to prepare the way I should. Lord, it's been very imperfect and I pray that you would please have mercy on your people for the sake of your son's name and for the praise of his mercy and also for, for your praise of mercy in my life too, that I might be able to rest in your mercy along with my brothers and sisters. And I pray a special prayer for anyone in this room right now, young or old, who doesn't know you, who, who still, Lord, um, who is still yet to come to Christ and find salvation in him. I pray in Jesus' name, you would plant seeds that would blossom into salvation for them today even to save outright today. Uh, Lord, today, may this day be the day of salvation for them. And for all of us who continue, Lord, I pray that it would be the day of continuing salvation, of continuing faith. In Jesus' name, I pray this, amen. So verse 17, for in, the righteous, for in it, the gospel, that is, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. We, you know, we come across these verses like, like this, like 17. And if you're like me, and you're like, let's say you're trying to read uh, the book of Romans, like a chapter a day or something. You just do a drive-by so easy on a phrase like the righteousness of God. And, and, and what's wild is Paul, I believe Paul means something so massive in this. And he unpacks it more later. But it's so easy just to blow by that phrase, the righteousness of God, and fill it with all kinds of conceptions about what it might mean and really just not know what it means. It just sounds so generic, the righteousness of God. Okay, well, so what does that mean? Do you know what it means, the righteousness of God? I mean, does it mean the justice of God? When, when we think about this phrase, the righteousness of God, in the context of the gospel, God wants us to know what it means. That's why he wrote this right there. He, 
It's why he, I think it's why he made pastors and churches and teachers because he doesn't want people just to drive by this phrase, the righteousness of God and just move on. He wants to understand what it means, but it's pretty generic. It's pretty big as a phrase. And and if I didn't spend a lot of time studying this, I I don't think I would know what it meant. And and so I I don't mean to be like, I'm better or something like that. I'm just saying, I, I think that when we come across phrases like this, the righteousness of God, we gotta be careful not to just move by him because they're there for a specific reason. And it's right to ask, what does this mean? And I I think if we stop to think about what it means, we might realize, well, we don't know what it means as much as we thought it might mean. Because here are some possibilities, for instance. Could the righteousness of God in the gospel refer to the character of God? his heart of righteousness, God's a a just God. I think when when you think of the phrase, the righteousness of God, I think that's probably what would come into your mind. That's probably what would come into my mind most would be, well, he's talking about God's character of righteousness, God's character of justice in the gospel. And and that certainly it's used many times like that. You know, we we would think of, of that word used that way as something like, your righteousness has kept you from cheating on your taxes, right? And, and the Psalms and the, the Old Testament use that, use that word that way all the time. Psalm 717, and go to the next slide. I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness. He, David is saying, you are a just God, you're, you're, you're fair. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give thanks to you. When, when Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed, Abraham's dealing with God. He's, he's pleading with him. Lord, if there are some righteous people left in that city, are you gonna destroy the whole city and kill those righteous people too? And he's pleading with God, don't do it. And, and, and his appeal is, isn't God righteous? Isn't he just? Isn't he fair? Right? He doesn't, he doesn't punish the innocent along with the wicked, does he? So that's the character trait of justice, of fairness, of righteousness. The Lord, Psalm 145 says, is righteous in all his ways. But listen, think about it for a second. In the context of the gospel, in the context of God's wrath in verse 18, revealed against all mankind, Paul says. If Paul is saying, we're talking about God's righteousness here, why is that the power of salvation? Like, that's not good news. I'm a sinner. I have not loved God and my neighbor as I should for my whole life. God can never owe me anything. Remember, we talked about that last week. If I loved perfectly and well my whole life, I would only be doing what what I was actually made to do from the beginning. I don't get extra points for that. Man was created upright and righteous. And so... If I learn in light of my sin and God's just need to punish sin, that God's righteous, that shouldn't make me happy. That should scare me. Like that should intimidate me. But Paul says that God's righteousness is at the very core of the gospel. It's why the gospel is saving. God's righteousness is why the gospel is the power of salvation. So I think it has to mean something more than God is fair. God is fair. Because if God is simply fair, full stop, I'm in massive trouble. I am. 
just for the stuff that I've done this week, the ways that I thought this week. So as I've studied this and looked at this, and by God's grace, I have looked at this, I think relative for me, who I am and how I study, I've looked at this hard over the last few weeks. And and other times in my life, I've looked at this hard, but I, I think that there are three prominent ways that are all related that help us understand what Paul means when he says that the gospel salvation is centered around this truth that God's righteousness is revealed, is made known in the gospel. Like there's three main ways that this becomes good news, gospel good news for us. So are you guys following me? Am I making sense here? Like we've got to understand. So there's three main ways and they all work together and I think they kind of like work like a cone, like boop, broad to narrow to the point where we really get to the end of why this righteousness of God, the way Paul means it, is really great news for humanity. So I want to start here. The righteousness of God is revealed in these three ways, like a cone. The salvation of God, the judgment of God, the verdict of God. We're going to see those three things as we look at this question. And and here's where I'm getting all this. When Paul wrote that phrase, the righteousness of God, he didn't have the book of Romans he was writing it. He didn't have the book of Galatians or 1 Corinthians. I've probably had maybe some of the gospel manuscripts. Paul had a Bible, right? But it was the Old Testament. So when he says the righteousness of God, Paul is drawing from the Old Testament conception of the righteousness of God. And we're going to see, I think, as we look at some passages, that it means something much broader and bigger than God's justice and fairness. It does mean that, absolutely. That's the core of behind everything else we can say about the righteousness of God. But he means more than that. And, and here's why. So my first idea for you to, to, to try to take in is that the righteousness of God in the gospel is talking about the salvation, the saving activity of God. And here's where I get that, okay? In the Old Testament, God's salvation is often very closely linked to the point where it's almost synonymous with his righteousness as it's described. Look at Psalm 98. Look at this Psalm right here. I'm not saying understand what this means, but look at this. It should shake, you know, what's going on here? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Verse two, that's a parallelism. It's a couplet, meaning those two lines mean essentially very similar, if not the same things. The Lord has made known his salvation I, 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 E, I, E, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Okay, Isaiah 48. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. Do you see that again? I'm not asking you to understand why these two things are together. I'm, I'm asking you to see righteousness and salvation in these passages are closely linked, if not synonymous. Okay, Isaiah 51, eight. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me and they will wait expectantly for my arm. Raise your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath for the sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in the same way but my salvation 
will be forever and my righteousness will not fail. What is going on? And that's, that's just a little tiny survey of this. I would never link God's salvation with God's righteousness. I would link what? His mercy with his salvation. His forgiveness with his salvation, right? That makes sense. I would not link his justice with his righteousness. But in these, these passages, as God is coming to act in a saving way for his people, his saving activity is synonymous with righteousness. His righteousness in these passages might even be said to be the salvation they actually experience. So what's going on here? What could this mean? Certainly, it, it could mean, again, it, if they're being oppressed unjustly, then his righteous character will compel him to protect them against the oppressors. And that's certainly part of what this can mean. But in the context of saving all of humanity, of saving sinful Israel, we have to ask the question, why does he call his salvation an expression of his righteousness? And this brings us to the next way we're going to examine how the righteousness of God is used. It's used in a way to declare God's judging, his judging activity, setting up a court and going to work to examine and judge. And again, what's odd is in many cases, it's good news. Psalm 96. He will judge the peoples with equity. That is with fairness. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And, and what should happen at the very top of that song? The heavens should be glad and the earth should rejoice because he judges the world in righteousness. Psalm 98, similarly, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, be cheerful and sing for joy and sing praises. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Why is that good news? Why are people supposed to rejoice? And why are trees clapping at that? I mean, maybe the trees are clapping because they're tired of us. But in many places in scripture, this day, this, this God's coming to judge the world is a very dark picture. It's a picture of grieving and dread and condemnation and account settled once and for all where a lot of humanity is ending up where the rebellion is put down and a lot of humanity is ending up in a place of shame. But here in Psalm 98, that same idea of God coming to judge the earth, it is a call for shouting joyfully and being cheerful specifically because this is important note because he will judge the world with his righteousness why is that good news? So we've looked at his salvation and, and is, is combined with his righteousness. And now we're seeing that his judgment is, is expressed in his righteousness. And it's making people, making trees clap and rivers be glad. And people are supposed to have joy. 
And now the last way, the verdict, the verdict of God. And this is where I think we start to see some clear lights. The verdict of God. Remember the cones. We looked at salvation of God, the judgment of God, the verdict of God. Psalm 24. Watch this psalm very closely. Who may ascend onto the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who's qualified to dwell right with God in his presence? One who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to deceit and has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, I want you to just try to think carefully. Like, again, this is one of these psalms we could just read. We read this psalm this week in the psalm group. It's like, blah, 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 next psalm. You know, this, this is confusing if you really stop to think about it. This person is already righteous. They've been described that way. They've got clean hands. They have a pure heart. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this person. This is a picture of Jesus, by the way. But, but he has not lifted up his soul to the seat. He's not sworn deceitfully. There's nothing wrong with this person. That's why he can dwell in God's presence without fear. And what does it God say? He will receive righteousness from God. Why? He doesn't need righteousness. The way that we think of it, he doesn't need righteousness as this abstract quality of this aspect of a character integrity. Because that's, I don't think that's what the psalmist is saying. What he is saying is, God is going to declare over this person a judgment. God is not making them righteous, they already are. But God is giving the verdict over their life. You are righteous. I am declaring you with my verdict to be righteous. If anybody accuses you why you're in this room with me when you shouldn't be, well, I've said you're righteous. I've already examined you and decided that you should be. So, righteous. This is a critical, critical aspect of what God's righteousness means. God's righteousness involves, in many places in scripture, his verdict over lives. He gives people a righteousness. And we always think that means, well, he, he makes them holy and, or it, it, it it might mean that in some places, but what it clearly means in other places is that God vindicates them. He declares over their lives righteous, blameless, innocent, acquitted. And that's that. And if God says it, it's true. And God will act accordingly and the universe must submit to that judgment. Isaiah 54, 17, look at this. God is speaking to Israel. This is a long passage about how God's gonna restore sinful, wandering Israel. And there is a judgment happening in this passage. Isaiah 54, 17. Here's what God says about their judgment. No weapon that is formed against you will succeed and you will condemn every tongue that accuses you in judgment. He doesn't say there's no right for anyone to say bad things about you. I mean, in, in the broader context of Isaiah 54, there's all kinds of problems with Israel. But God is saying, I'm going to bring you to a place where no one can accuse you in judgment anymore. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me. He says it's from me. He doesn't say it's from them. He doesn't say it's from how good they are. He says it's, it's from me. Other translations say their vindication. And I think this is law court language. There's accusing going on. There's judging going on. And God says, no, 
No accusation will stand in my courtroom. Your righteousness comes from me. And I am saying, not guilty, innocent, righteous. And perhaps one of the most important examples as we consider the gospel and this idea of God giving a verdict of righteousness is in Genesis 15, verse 5. God is caring for Abraham. He brings him outside and he says this in verse 5. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and it And he, God, that is, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. God gives Abraham a righteous verdict over his life. Abraham, listen, Abraham came from a a Chaldean, possibly Iraqi today people group. And so just like everybody in this room is related, if we go back far enough, we are all blood relatives. It's in our DNA. Black and white, rich or poor, Asian, European, South American, we're all related. DNA proves it. Abraham's probably coming from, well, he certainly is coming from the region of, of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon, which is now today Iraq. But, but my point is in saying that is Ur of the Chaldeans, they were moon worshipers. Abraham came from idolatry. He was a moon worshiper. God calls him out of that culture and promises to make him the father of a great nation and to bless the entire world through him. When Abraham believes God's promise in this interchange, God does something shocking. You know, Abraham believed God and God was pleased. Abraham believed God and his heart was filled with joy. No, he believes God. And in response, they're not even talking about right and wrong. Abraham's not even in our eyes on trial here. But, but Abraham believes God's promise and God does this thing. He, he brings his judging power into Abraham's life and he says, Righteous, righteous, innocent, blameless. Maybe better for us to think of it this way, acquitted. Record wiped clean. Perfect record now, Abraham. Perfect record forever. Righteous. He credits a status of righteous over Abraham, who, if you read the fuller narrative of Abraham's life, does not always act in righteous ways and was in himself not a perfect man. So when Paul says in Romans 1.17 that the righteousness of God is at the core of the saving power of the gospel, he's bringing this huge funnel of the Old Testament concept of righteousness into this verse. The saving activity of God, the judging activity of God, and the final verdict of God over our lives. This is what the righteousness of God implies, I believe, in this verse. And and here's more proof. The next time we see this phrase in the context of the gospel is in Romans 3. Paul's going to set this phrase aside for about a chapter and a half as he takes us into the wreckage of humanity. And after he's taken us through this journey through the titanic wreckage of our, of our human race that shows our unrighteousness, 
and that shows God's wrath against us for our unrighteousness. That's just wrath, by the way. That's not crazy basketball coach gone mad throwing chairs across the, uh, the basketball floor wrath. It's always my favorite picture of wrath gone insane is Danny Ainge or somebody, some coach from, uh, some of you guys who care about college basketball might know, but some video of some coach a few years ago just so angry at the end of a game just starts chucking chairs across the floor because the refs are calling it bad. Just out of control rage. That's not what God's wrath is like. It is just. And this is an aside because we're going to talk about God's wrath a good amount and condemnation. God's wrath is a righteous, just, integrity-sourced, sober judgment against sin. And it is not one size fits all. I don't believe that the, that the Muslim woman in Syria, whose whole village was murdered by ISIS, who's never heard the gospel, is gonna receive the same punishment as the pastor at you know, Fifth Prez in New York, who's heard the gospel his whole life and has distorted it and twisted it and turned it into something that makes him feel good and makes people feel nice, but lies about God. I think that just like the scriptures bore out, some of the people who are going to receive the harshest judgment from God are the most religious people because they receive the most light from God. Jesus said, he who knows his master's will and does not do it will be guilty of many lashes. But he who does not know his master's will and does not do it will be guilty of few lashes. So God's punishment, his wrath against sin, it is, it, it is precise. It fits the crime, so to speak. I just want to say that just so we don't, we don't mischaracterize what God means when he talks about his wrath. It's sober, it's just, it's precisely just. But it won't work for us. It, it won't save us. So it's, it's an amazing thing for Paul to say, well, what is gonna save you is God's righteousness. Because I would have thought that's what would condemn me and destroy me. But Paul says actually his righteousness is gonna be what saves you. His salvation comes through his righteousness. His judgment is gonna be what saves you. His verdict over your life is gonna be what saves you. It's gonna be a righteous verdict. Well, how? And that's why I wanna jump over here to Romans 3. I wanna summarize this. Later on, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get into the deep dregs of this passage because it's one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful gospel passage in the Bible. It's up there with the candidates, this passage. But I, I just want to summarize what's going on here. Paul is explaining in Romans 3, at the end of it, that even if we have the laws of God, the righteous laws of God, we don't follow them. So no one is going to stand righteous in God's courtroom, whether they have God's laws or not. Our works are never going to save us. We stand unrighteous in ourselves before him. So that's what he's saying in 19 and 20. He says this, now we know that whatever the law says, love your neighbor, do not covet, do not steal, do not look with lust, do not uh, murder in your heart or murder in reality. It, whatever it says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Everyone has to give an account to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, by the doing of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
Our works are never going to save us. We will stand unrighteous in ourselves before him. All the law does really, if we really understand it as it, as it is, is it, is, it, is it shines a light on our sin at, at a minimum. But, but then he explains how we will find salvation and he explains it the same way he did in Romans 1.17. He will explain it in terms of the righteousness of God. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, there it is again, the phrase, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This is what we saw in the Old Testament. God is making his righteousness known to us in a saving way. His righteous saving activity is at work for us. He is showing his righteousness in a way that isn't going to condemn us, but it's going to save us. And let's see how. First, we see his judgment in verse 22 and 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's judging activity, again, as we saw in the Old Testament, it's at work. God is a righteous judge. He is coming to judge all peoples, Jew and Gentile without partiality. And here, here is a preview of his judgment. Here's what he says in summation about all of humanity, everyone, the Muslim woman in Iraq or in Syria and the preacher in fifth prayers, me and you. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is his verdict. We're gonna see much more about the verdict in the coming weeks, but this is the summation of it. We were made to image God. We were made to image God and to live in such a way that the truth about God would be seen through our lives. We were made to look like him in the way that we love him and love one another. We were made to talk, we were made to show how worthy he is by how we trust him. We were made to show how trustworthy he is by how we put our hope in him and not in other things. As his image bearers, we were made to show God with the way that we love and the way that we live. And if we want to look at what that looks like, a proper, reasonable example of what that should look like, look at Jesus Christ. That's what we were supposed to be like, all of us. We're supposed to be like Jesus, loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, what does the Bible say? It says he is the exact representation of the glory of God. He is the radiance, the exact radiance of God's glory. If you've seen me, you've seen the, whoever has seen me has seen the the father. But we have fallen far short of that. We do not look like Jesus. We do not love him above all things. We do not trust him with all things. We do not love our, our neighbors, ourselves, laying down our lives for one another. And God says, hey, that's what you're supposed to be. Like, that's what I made you in the garden, Adam and Eve. Ecclesiastes says they were made upright in heart. And you fall short of proclaiming to yourself and to others who I really am. You don't show me. So he says, we've all sinned and fallen short. 
That's in verse 22, 23. And then look, without missing a beat, look at his verdict in 24. And all are declared righteous freely by his grace through the, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now we're at the verdict. Saving activity, his judgment, and now his verdict. All of you who fall short of my glory, I declare you righteous freely who put your hope in my son. How is this the righteousness of God? Isn't this the corruption of God? Isn't this the lack of justice in God? No, because he does it through the redemption that came by Christ. God is righteous. He pays for what needs to be paid for. And so Christ paid for us. Long time ago, I used this example. Think about being a kid and coming downstairs and one of my greatest moments as a kid was coming downstairs to a, a bicycle, a 10-speed, a, sh- a Schwinn, back when Schwinn was made by Schwinn and not by the Walmart folks. Sorry. It was like 19, you know, it was like there were dinosaurs on the earth. It was a long time ago. And I came downstairs, there was a beautiful white 10-speed bike. It was like, you're getting to be a grown-up proclamation, you know? It wasn't like a huffy BMX. It was a 10-speed. It was beautiful, big frame. I was so excited. It said Schwinn. And our family, that was like the top-of-the-line bike. I mean, my dad had put down some money from, for this Christmas to get me a 10-speed Now, what if I looked at that <laughs> and I saw a little ticket on it? It said, property of Sam Barano. <laughs> little, little mark under there. Prop- in my next door neighbor, Sam Barano. You know? Dad? Did you get this from Sam? Ah, don't worry about it. He won't miss it. Left it out in his yard last week. I cleaned it up. But it's Sam's bike. Ah! We'll paint it, scratch his name off. I'd feel, you know, pretty bad about that gift, right? I'd be scared to ride that bike. It's got no integrity to it. There's no justice in that gift. There's no righteousness in that gift. That's not what God does here with you. When he gives you the verdict of righteous, it's paid for. That bike is paid for. <laughs> There's no San Barano on it. It's your bike. He paid for it. Verse 25, how did he do this? How did he pay for this? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In a way that's not fully disclosed to us, Christ, in metaphysical language, he takes our sin upon himself and is condemned for all of our sin. All of our sin he is condemned for. And therefore we are free of the guilt of sin in God's judgment because we have already been judged in Jesus Christ. We are no longer guilty. We are now blameless. Putting it positively, we are declared righteous in his judgment through the blood of Christ. I use that phrase declared righteous. It's in some of your Bibles. Other your Bibles will say justified. It's the same idea. It's the same Greek word. Dikeo. 
It's part of a, a word group of righteousness words. Righteous, righteousness. Right, just, justified. We are declared righteous. It's referring to his verdict over our lives through the blood of Christ. Next verse, to accent that this is the righteousness of God, to show that this is the righteousness of God being made known, being manifest at work. He says, he did this, God did this, verse 25, to demonstrate his righteousness. What do you mean, Paul? Well, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, God did not eternally punish his people ever for their sins. Those who belonged to God before Christ were never eternally punished. They were saved. They were forgiven. And all of the heavenly places could ask at that point who couldn't see through time and space, why are you not punishing these people? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation, he accuses us day and night. He can look at the multitude of saints before the cross and say, why didn't you punish these people? Why are you forgiving these people? And now God has disclosed how he could do that and still be righteous. He demonstrates in Christ why he could forgive and still be righteous. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Right now, he's showing the universe that he's righteous. Angels and demons, I have no idea. They may have wondered, how is God going to pull this off if he's going to be righteous? How is he going to pull this off? He's letting all these people, he's forgiving them all. I thought he's a God who cares about justice. I thought he was righteous. No, in Christ, God shows that he is both righteous by being the God who punishes sins and he is also able to declare his people righteous before him through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is paid for. So we're putting it all together now. We see God's righteousness comes to us. It is a huge idea. I mean, isn't it a... It is incredible to think, as I've been thinking about this, and words kind of fail because the precision of my mind fails, but it's it's really wonderful to think that I'm saved by God's mercy. It's wonderful to think that I'm saved because of his forgiveness. I'll tell you what, it is a 34,000 pound safe tank (laughs) to say I am saved because he's righteous. To say his righteousness saves me. His, I am saved by his justice. Like that's double secure. But that's what Paul is saying. God's righteousness is made known through Jesus Christ. He pays for all of your debts and no one can say that your salvation lacks integrity. Even though you lack integrity in some measure, So now for many more sermons and most of you, Lord willing, know God's righteousness declared over our lives is the beginning 
of a journey towards a real righteousness in our lives lived out, a real holiness that we grow in. You can't live unrighteously continually without repentance and say God has declared you righteous because it goes together. Once he declares righteousness over your life, once he says not guilty in my courtroom, once he declares innocent, blameless over your life, he then is free to not be against you anymore. In fact, it would be wrong and unjust for him to be against you anymore because you're blameless and he can't treat blameless, innocent people with wrath. He has to treat them with kindness and mercy and grace. And so once you are declared righteous, he pours his spirit over you. He changes your heart. He gives you strength to follow him that you could never have in yourself. All the riches of the kindness flow into your life through this door that opens called righteous in his courtroom. And you start to change. You will change and you are changing if you're his. Not perfectly, but truly. So, and Romans will have a lot to say about that, starting especially in uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8. But I wanted to bring this to you for these, these important reasons. Because as we look at our sin and God's judgment in detail going forward in 2 and 3, we need to keep, in 1, 2, and 3, we need to keep the righteousness of God that's given to us close. It's our ship of safety as we go down to the ocean of the wreckage of these realities ahead. Because we are part of that wreckage we are part of that wreckage as we're going to see. And so we need to recognize that not only are we part of that wreckage, actually, more importantly, we're safe inside the righteousness of God. This will help us. I think this can help us in several ways. As we look at the wreckage over the coming weeks, we may be tempted to minimize what we see. It's very uncomfortable to consider, as Paul does in 1, 2, and 3, the state of the world as God sees it. It is so different from the way we are used to seeing it. It's very different from the way you will ever see it on Fox or CNN, et cetera, or Disney movies or National Geographic. It is, it is not easy to consider how real God's judgment is and how precise it is and how dreadful it is if we don't have Christ. And so we're going to be tempted to minimize it. As we look at these things, we're going to be tempted to not really want to consider it. We're going to be tempted to assert, actually, that our judgment is better than God's. How could he say these things? He's got to be nice, nicer than this. You know? but, but if we want to take God seriously, if we want to cherish his salvation that he's given and to really consider the predicament of our neighbors, we need to take what we will see seriously. I need to take it seriously. So I can say to to my buddy Frank across the street. Hey, Frank, good to see you. <laughs> Go on my way. But instead, I can walk over to him and say, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? Can I get to know you? Can I find out about your life? And, and hopefully, can God build some bridges so I can show you with gentleness and respect how God has saved me and changed me? Because Frank, you need it too. And I believe that seeing the links to which God has gone to save us in the death of his son will, will help us remember that this is real. It will help us sense that this is a serious thing. It's like, go back to the Titanic analogy. If, if you're on the, the, the deck of the Titanic and you've hit the iceberg, you felt the bump, and part of you thinks maybe something's wrong, but part of you thinks something's not wrong. If, if some people around you um, are confused and they're like, is everything okay? And you're like, I think everything's And some other folks are like, ah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. This is Titanic. This is a great ship. 
you might think, okay, it's going to be fine. But what if you saw, like, a few minutes later, like 17 rescue vessels, big ones, circling the Titanic, and all these fire rescue EMT folks get into life rafts, and they all start making your way, their way to you. You would start to believe that something really is wrong with the Titanic, wouldn't you? Right? It'd be much easier to believe if you didn't have all the data, once you start to see the salvation crew assembling around the sinking ship, you start to take the sinking ship reality more seriously. And I think the gospel of God's righteousness helps us do that. Seeing the links that he went to, sacrificing his own son to pay for our sins, help us not just gloss it over. Holding on to the truth that his righteousness compelled him to judge our sin in his son will help us, I think, take to heart that his judgment is very, it's very real. It has integrity because we can't see it with our natural eyes. None of us will see ourselves right in the world right with our natural eyes. So that's one of the reasons why we're staying close, I hope, today and in the coming weeks to the righteousness of God. And secondly, we may be tempted to lose hope we may be tempted to lose hope, not just not take what Paul will say about the wreckage of humanity seriously, but if we do take it seriously, we'll be tempted to lose hope. We may start to look at our lives only through the vision of judgment and wrath on sin as opposed to the verdict of righteous in Christ that he gives us. Because that's not gonna be good for us either. I'm contrary to what we can naturally feel, prolonged unaddressed feelings of shame and guilt do not help us deal with our sin. Contrary to what we naturally feel, prolonged and unaddressed, shame can be good if it ends in grace and mercy, if it's accurate shame. Some shame is never good because it's false shame. But, but prolonged and unaddressed feelings of guilt, real guilt, as we contemplate our sin, do not help us deal with our sin. Our understanding of, of our sin, it has to be dealt with in our hearts where it was dealt with on the cross. It has to be dealt with in our hearts first and foremost by seeing what, how God dealt with it in the death of his son who took it away from us and says, you bear it no more. Yes, you experience it in this life, but I'm not counting your sins against you. And that goes so against our, 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 our intuition of justice. And it should, except for that cross where his blood pays for it all, forever. So that we can be able to see and follow Jesus imperfectly. Still battling with sin, still at war with it. I said this to a dear brother uh, last week, God is not asking for you to be perfect in this life. He is asking for you not to make peace with sin. He knows you will struggle. That's why his son came. That's why his son still lives at his right hand interceding for you. But he does command you not to make peace with it, but to go to war against it. but with the knowledge that Christ has dealt with it. That Christ has once and for all dealt with it. That you are, even as you walk imperfectly, you are, because of his righteousness, declared righteous 
by God always. That his righteousness, in righteousness, he has said that over your life. This is the foundation of the gospel. It's the gift that we're called to receive simply by faith, continuing to believe it from beginning to end. We trust God for it. This gift of his righteous declaration over our lives that we don't deserve, given freely through the blood of the righteous one who takes all your unrighteousness away and says over you, blameless, not guilty, righteous in my son. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this was a lot. I pray that your Holy Spirit would please take these seeds that were of you and blossom them in the hearts of your people. And please, Lord, the things that weren't of you, would you, by your grace, uh, let them forget and fall to the ground. Lord, let us rejoice that over us you have declared righteous in Christ. Let us rejoice that you have declared over us in your courtroom, blameless, innocent, even though we know we are not in ourselves. We see the blood of Jesus Christ and we recognize, Lord, you have settled our debt once and for all. It is settled. I pray for any who who do not understand this, who do not see this, that you would open eyes. I pray for any who have given up hope on this, who have put this to the side, that you would help them to hope again. Lord, may you be glorified in your righteousness and in your grace through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.